Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, November 28th. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to wish all of you Crack Rackets listeners a happy belated Thanksgiving. Hopefully all of you had the opportunity to spend some time with your families at a minimum. Got a bit of a hiatus from the stresses of day-to-day life. Of course, we here at Crack Rackets were so fortunate over the course of the past four days to be hosting the USTA Boys 12's Level 1 National Event. Of course, it is always quite the thrill to see some of the top 12 and under talent in the country come together to compete against one another. And rather than regale you with many stories compiled from across the course of the weekend, I will simply say this. If you are a fan of American men's tennis, I sincerely mean it when I say I think the best is still ahead of us. Now, Certainly, we saw that manifest itself last year in the ATP results we saw unfold. Taylor Fritz winning Indian Wells. I think it's, what, nine top 50 Americans to end this season. So many of them born 1996 or later. It's not just Fritz, Paul Tiafo all making leaps, but of course, Nakashima, Korda, Brooksby, and others coming on strong as well. But in addition to that top-end talent over the course of these past two years, I'm telling you, my biggest reflection from watching this Boys 12's national event is just how talented some of these 12-year-olds are, how well all of them strike the ball already, how well so many of them are able to construct points. The level of tennis is immensely high, given the age group we have the privilege to host here in Indianapolis. It was also pretty cool. The girls' 18s level one national was also here in Indy. So I suppose for the course of the past four days, Indy has been the tennis capital of the country here in the the United States, but a lot of fun tennis seen over the course of the past weekend. Shout out to all of the parents who did come up and say they have listened to some of our Cracked Rackets material. We are immensely grateful for that fact and, again, immensely grateful for their patience throughout the course of the weekend. Really fun event. Yes, it can get stressful. So many people want to get their matches on. A lot of competition to be played. High stakes across the board, but more than anything else, it's just really cool to see the grassroots level of tennis to see the future of the sport, the enthusiasm so many of these young kids have and possess for this game. Uh, it's really encouraging if you're a fan of American men's tennis. It's really encouraging just if you're a fan of tennis because those sorts of events not only happening here in the United States, but across the globe as well. And hopefully the level of enthusiasm we saw here in Indianapolis is reflected in those events as well. 
That said, another really cool part of this weekend is our tournament desk at the Community Sports and Wellness Center in Pendleton, Indiana. Beautiful facility, by the way. They deserve the shout-out they just received. Right in front of our tournament desk is a massive television screen where I was not only able to screen Michigan versus Ohio State. Shout-out to the Wolverines back-to-back years. And by the way, I love my family dearly. I love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, brothers. Love you, extended mother side of the family, who we so frequently spend Thanksgiving with. If the price of hosting this tournament and missing Thanksgiving with my family is Michigan continues to beat Ohio State year after year after year, I'll say this, it's a tax I think I'd be willing to pay. Shout out to the Wolverines. Go blue boy. I'll tell you what. Cornelius's first touchdown was delightful to break a tackle, streak down the sideline, keep the game close, tie things when we really weren't doing much on offense. That was delightful to see the double move. Uh, I forget who the defender for Ohio State was. His ankles are still at the horseshoe. You know, another deep ball from McCarthy to Cornelius. But the first Donovan Edwards long touchdown run, that was when it was like, oh my God, are we actually going to do this again? And look, I know the 90s were great for my Wolverines. Certainly, you can go back to the late 1890s if you'd like to as well for the history of Michigan football. In my lifetime, it's been a lot of Ohio State beating Michigan. And not only on the football field, on the tennis court as well. But now, these past two years, wins on the tennis court have turned into wins on the football field. You see how I turned tennis promoting football there is the spin we're going to go with. Yeah, it was an exciting weekend to watch that. But even more exciting, perhaps, for all of you mini-break listeners is the fact that on that big screen, the majority of the time was the Davis Cup action we saw unfold. And I won't lie, I mean, maybe it was that I was immersed in just about every match that unfolded, but I dove headfirst into Davis Cup this year, and I haven't really locked in on Davis Cup quite this closely, maybe ever before in my life, and... There are some things I really liked about the event. Now, I know there are some detractions from quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, all being held in one week, in one country. We no longer allow these players to play on their home soil as frequently, and how majestic the atmosphere was for some of those matches is certainly a component that is missed, but there is an energy. There is a buzz to this Davis Cup week, to the reconfigurations of this event, of each of the ties. I'm kind of buying stock in the future of Davis Cup. I think while the format will probably continue to get played with, it's a property, and by the way, this is not a hot take or a revelation, but I now understand why Davis Cup is so exciting, why so many tennis fans feel so passionate about the event, despite the fact that it's always hidden in so many interesting pockets of the calendar. It was a really fun week of action, and certainly the big storyline, Team Canada captures, I believe, their first Davis Cup title, and look, we've done this podcast segment before. What country do you want to be over the next decade a fan of in men's tennis? Certainly, Canada with Felix Shapovalov was always high on that list. Italy with Berrettini Sinner always going to be on that list. Maybe you'll just take Spain and Alcaraz and ride it out, America maybe in that discussion now as well. The point is, everyone knew Canada's future meant competing for Davis Cups. When you have two guys like Felix and Chapo in this format, you just feel like you're always going to have a shot. And 
that's precisely what we saw unfold over the course of this Davis Cup Championship week. And certainly much like we saw to end the 2022 ATP season, one of the big takeaways is Felix the second best indoor hardcourt player in the world? Now, that's a specific niche, and I think after what we saw at the ATP Finals, no one can dispute Novak Djokovic is the guy heading into the 2023 season, but I want to look back at Davis Cup history and talk about what other players have done and why what Felix did over the past week echoes some of the things we've seen historically. And again, when a player does X in Davis Cup, sometimes it leads to Y on the ATP Tour. And with the run we've seen from Felix since losing to Draper at the U.S. Open, I think this Davis Cup title X is going to lead to a big Y for Felix in 2023. Uh, I don't know why that's the analogy I went with, but we'll get into more FAA talk here today. I want to talk about the excitement of those finals doubles rubbers. If you're a college tennis fan, this week's Davis Cup action, the deciding doubles, Australia, Croatia, certainly Canada, Italy, It's a strong case for putting doubles after singles, and I know college tennis is not the typical topic of discussion here on the Mini Break Podcast Forum, but I'm just saying, I really like the ending of the doubles rubber, the excitement, the quickness, the spontaneity, how you can feel the players feel the pressure, and for Canada... Boy, their doubles rubber was really, really good throughout the course of this Davis Cup week. So we'll get into Team Canada's success, as good as Felix was... And I know I've promised this podcast in December, and by the way, we're three days away from December, so guess what, folks? All these sorts of podcast topics are coming up, but Alex Diemenauer would have been, I mean, he's top 30 player in the world. Of course, he would have been one of the best college tennis players in the country, but the ethos, the energy of Alex Diemenauer, I want him on my team. I'll go to war with him, and we'll figure the rest out. Because Diemenauer was that guy for Australia this week, and I want to explain what I mean here on today's show. His win over Cilic in the semifinals against Croatia, that was there. I don't want to say it was elite, but it was really, really good stuff from the young Australian who, again— Where does he go from here in his career? I think it's a fascinating topic for us to explore this offseason, of course. There are other Davis Cup things to discuss. I want to get into Team Italy. Why, that's a really exciting team moving forward. Yes, there was some Team USA drama off the court. Obviously, the decision to exclude Rajiv Ram ultimately uh, really did bit the U.S. in the derriere as... U.S. loses a deciding doubles rubber in the quarterfinals to Italy. Now, Fonini Bellelli, an exceptional team. But again, if you have world number one, Rajiv Ram, you pair him with a Jack Sock instead of maybe having Tommy Paul on the roster, or maybe you just have Rajiv Ram there instead of Jack Sock, and you're rolling with the world number one at doubles. There was obviously some second guessing of Marty Fish in the post-match press conference in the tennis Twitter universe. I want to get into, I suppose, my thoughts on that fish decision, the controversy there. And then again, other tennis takeaways, format thoughts, just kind of put a final bow on the 2022 Davis Cup. 
Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on this Mini Break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. By the way, if you're looking for postseason content on the 2022 ATP and WTA years, go check out our Great Shot podcast feed. David Kane, Gil Gross joined me for an ATP award show. Of course, on this podcast feed, you can listen to myself, Nick McCarville, offer our awards from the 2022 WTA season. And we wanted to give you some big podcasts, I suppose, super amount of three hours of podcasting for your holiday weekend. If you haven't already, go check that out. That said, just a quick schedule update, I suppose, as well. I'll sneak in here for all of you listeners. We're getting back on the daily grind. We are officially in off-season mode. What does that mean? It means we're exploring those laundry list of questions we have coming out of the year. And as we turn the calendar towards 2023, of course, for you college tennis fans, it's time for our top 10 preview. Who are our 10 best men? and women's Division I teams heading into the 2023 season. You'll hear from myself, Chris Halioris, John Parsons, our cast of college tennis characters over the course of the past month and a half as we get you ready for another very exciting year in the college tennis world. Oh, by the way, I suppose on today's show, I should also probably talk about Diane Schneider, who will she ultimately end up playing college tennis if her recent results are any indication cancer might just be no. She's been that good over the course of the past few months, and we can talk about that here on today's show. But again, shout out to you listeners who tune in day in, day out. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. If you're ready to do your holiday shopping, Tennis Point's the place to turn. Rackets, strings, shoes, clothing, you name it, they've got it. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. Here are my thoughts on the Davis Cup, and it starts with Felix Ogier Aliasim. I know I've done this segment 12 times, 15 times, 17 times. How many matches did he win consecutively? What was it, of 15 or 18 consecutive matches? I suppose that's how many times I did this segment over the course of the past couple of months. But you look for Felix since the start of the Laver Cup, 21-5 and five to end the year. Let's just quickly look at the five losses. He loses to Berrettini, 10-7 in the third at Labor Cup. You can throw that one out. Loses 4-6 and six to RBA in Astana, a two-hour straight set match where Felix was broken twice but hit double-digit aces, won 81% of his first serve points. I had the chance to be in Tennis Channel Studios calling matches at the time. We got to see a little bit of that match on T2. Felix didn't play poorly. The slow conditions in Astana just allowed RBA to track down everything. And that was a really high-level match from Felix. But then, obviously, wins Florence, beats a really informed Lorenzo Musetti in the semifinals, wins Antwerp, beats Korda in the finals, wins Basel, beats Alcaraz, beats Runa, beats Kasmenovic, and informed Marc-Andre Hussler, who, of course, is only a top, you know, right around 65 in the world, but the big serving lefty had won a title, I believe the week before, and certainly played some really good tennis down the home stretch of the year on the indoor hard courts. That's a big lefty indoor hard court was a matchup maybe Felix struggles with earlier in his career, particularly having played eight matches over the course of the past two weeks, but he didn't. He got that win. He wins in Basel, gets himself not only to the Paris Masters semifinals where, yes, he's knocked off by Runa, but is finishing the year top 10. 
and then gets to the tour finals, plays two really fun matches where, yes, he loses 6-2 in the third to Fritz, but he wasn't broken going into that third set. Yes, he loses 6-4 and four to Casper Ruud, but he was broken once on one breakpoint chance for Ruud throughout the course of that match. Of course, he beats Rafa. And then this week, straight set wins over Oscar Ota, Lorenzo Musetti, and then perhaps most impressively over a very much in form Alex Diemenauer in the final. The most impressive thing to me, and I... Don't, I didn't watch the Oscar Ota match as closely as perhaps the other two. Felix wasn't broken against Musetti, against Demon Hour. And what was most impressive in that Demon Hour match were the few opportunities where Felix had the breakpoint chances, how he capitalized. It starts set number one. You know, again, just any time Demon Hour served to the Felix forehand, Felix made him pay. He's done a really good job of shortening that backswing and just using the weight of his ball, leaning into that return rather than taking a big cut at it to generate the depth he needs to get the point back at neutral. And, you know, for Felix, it was a good return followed by an extraordinarily aggressive inside-out forehand, the maybe number one weapon in Felix's arsenal that gets him that opening break, which he closes at the net 4-5-3, serves it out 4-6-3. But then the most impressive part for Felix, and this is where, you know, Felix is kind of that guy now. Diemenauer holds for one love. And the energy Alex Diemenauer plays with, there's a passion, there's a fire, which I'll get into a little bit more in a little bit, where he wants to win so badly for his team, he will do whatever it takes. He'll enter the roadrunner mode where, look, you may win the point, but you better hit a clean winner because I'm going to get a racket on it if you don't hit the ball absolutely perfectly. You're going to have to hit the ball three extra times to win the point against my elite speed, even against Felix. You know, Demon Hour opens up a 15-40 lead after holding 4-1 love in the second set, has a couple of breakpoint chances. Leighton Hewitt's fired up on the bench. Australia's trying to get the crowd going. What does Felix do? Big first serve, big first strike, ridiculous Backhand cross-court short angle volley to fight off the first break point, then a big first serve to, you know, draw an error out of Demon Hour to get back to Deuce. And then it's back to the basics. Big first serve, big first strike, big inside in to clinch the game. He holds 4-1 all. Now, not only does he fight off the break point chances 4-1 all, what does he do in the next game? He breaks Demon Hour 4-2-1. And that's what the best players in the world do. Not only, you know, when they're in danger, do they fight their way out of the danger, but then they capitalize on that momentum to pejoratively, dare I say, or not pejoratively, but figuratively, step on the throat of their opponents and separate themselves in that moment. That's what Felix did. And from a superficial level, as opposed to, and by the way, Felix unbroken in the match, but as opposed to, Pointing to specific instances, the general theme of the match, with all due respect to Alex Diemenauer, who, when he had the opportunity to land a big first serve, draw a short return from Felix, he stepped up and hit his first strike, particularly his first forehand with that newfound pace and, dare I say, authority that didn't exist early in his career. And that's a fascinating thing as we look at Demon Hour moving forward. But more than anything else, Demon Hour is just overwhelmed by the weight of Felix's shots, whether it was the backhand cross-court exchanges. Yes, Demon Hour guides that ball well. Yes, he can take it on the short hop. Yes, he uses your pace against you. But his inability to generate maybe not elite pace, but very good pace, 
I mean, Felix was just able to find ad side forehands. I don't want to say at will, but pretty comfortably. And when Felix is hitting a forehand in that ad corner, you're just in trouble because he's going to go inside out, inside out. And then you have no idea what he's doing with that third ball because you want to cover the inside out because he'll beat you behind you if you cheat over. That said, if you don't cheat over, he's going to kill you with the inside in. And that's what he does on match point to clinch the Davis Cup. The team swarms him and obviously everyone's going nuts. I mean, again, whether it was that win, whether it was for Felix having to win with his team down 1-0 against Oscar Ota. Oscar Ota's a tough out. Indoor hardcore, big serve in German, playing with nothing to lose. Felix just comfortable on serve, stuck to the bread and butters, got hit bread and butter, got his breakpoint opportunity, converted it with a good return at the feet in set number two. And now it's one all. And now it's on to the doubles. Same thing against Italy. Sonego, an emotional three-set win over Shapovalov. What does Felix do? Comes out unbroken on serve in a three and four win over Lorenzo Musetti. Felix is that guy. And again, when you look historically at some of the runs we've seen in Davis Cup history back in, you know, when Switzerland made their run in 2014, who powered that team over the finish line? It was obviously Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka. Well, what is Stan? You know, yeah, I guess 2014 was a little bit after his breakthrough breakthrough, but that was the same year. 2014, he wins the Davis Cup. That was the year he won the Australian Open. Of course, the next year he wins the French Open, makes the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. His tied for best result wins the U.S. Open in 2016, a Tours final semifinalist in 2015 as well. Stan and Roger ripping off that Davis Cup title, that kind of cemented Stan's status as, okay, no, the Australia run wasn't a fluke. He is one of the elite of the elite guys now moving forward. Of course, Andy Murray. Gets the big monkey off of Great Britain's back. They capture that title in 2015. It was Great Britain's first Davis Cup title since all the way back, what was it, the Fred Perry days maybe? 1936 is what I see in front of me. You look for Andy Murray. What was his 2016 season? Well, of course, he goes on to win Wimbledon again. He goes on to finish the year world number one. It's the first time he and only time he did that in his career. He goes on to win the Olympics again in 2016. You know, again, Murray takes that run to Davis Cup, jumps to the next level. Juan Martin Del Potro, another, I don't want to say one-man run, but what he did for uh, Argentina Back in 2016, you look for Marin Cilic, who helps lead Croatia to the Davis Cup title in 2018. What does Marin Cilic's 2019 look like? Well, you know, it's interesting that 2018 was actually probably the better year because he made the finals of Australia that season. But, you know, 2019, I suppose, a little bit of a down year, but he capitalized on that Davis Cup momentum in 2018. And, you know, again, that was probably the weakest of the examples, but... You look at the Russians who won the Davis Cup title last year and, you know, all of the success they've continued to have, that that group. And now for Felix and Shapovalov, they win the ATP Cup title. Obviously, Felix a part of that Labor Cup title run. And now he wins the Davis Cup title. I don't want to say single-handedly, but certainly his performance in the doubles alongside of Pospisil against Italy. I mean, Team Canada's energy in that semifinal and throughout the course of the final It felt like a college tennis match, which is the highest praise I think I can offer from an energy standpoint to watch Vashik Pospisil go nuts after every point he and Felix won. The positivity, the just 
non-stop kineticness. I know that's not a word, but the non-stop just fidgety, just the, the, the constant cheering, the constant fist pumps, the constant engagement. They kind of wore Fodini and Berrettini down, and credit to Team Canada, you know, having Pospisil on the roster, having him play the doubles instead of just the Felix Chapeau combination, it paid its most dividends, not only against Germany, where he and Chapeau win the match, I believe, in three sets in doubles, but against Italy, first set breaker. Italy had been up a break early in the set. They get that break back as Team Canada. Then the breaker, it was Pospisil serve, you know, alongside of Felix that kind of separated. You know, Fonini's serve was the most attackable and Pospisil did such a good job. Any short ball return popped up by Italy, you know, as a result of Felix's elite serve, Pospisil cleaned up. Again, the energy he brought in those deciding rubbers, he was confident they were the better team and that ultimately paid dividends. And again, you know, to watch Shapovalov get a much-needed win in that final to, you know, did he play his absolute best against Kokonakis? That was probably, yeah, I would say of the week, that was the best match that Shapovalov played. I mean, certainly it was his only win of the week, but you look for Shapo who wins that match 2-4 and four and, you know, just w- was a very clean match for him on serve. He made 70% of his first serves, dropped just 13 points on serve in what, let's see, five plus four is nine service games. He wasn't afraid to hit his backhand big into the Kokonakis forehand. He didn't let Kokonakis cheat over onto the ad side. He was just the aggressor. And after, I don't want to say getting worked by Struff on day one and you know, but after, you know, a seven, I should say after getting worked, I should say mentally, certainly you could have seen a world where, you know, a seven, six loss in the th- third loss to Struff, the six, four in the third loss to Sinego, where that could have broken him. It didn't. He rebounded two and four over Kokonakis that allowed the big gun Felix to do his thing. And again, for Felix, 21 and five overall to end the season, 60 and 27 on the year. He and CT Pons, I believe the only players to crack that 60 win plateau. I mean, he won 69% of his matches. He's going to finish the year in the top 10. He's going to be, a, you know, he's not a dark horse contender to win the U, uh, the Australian Open title, depending on where he falls. I suppose everyone that's not Djokovic is to some level a dark horse contender, but Felix was holding 93% of the time on the indoor hard courts to end the season. He is one of the guys who, if it's not Djokovic, you have to circle at the top of tier two contenders at the 2022 Australian Open, of course. Again, you look for Denis Shapovalov, his teammate Shapo, to end the year 34-26 and 26 overall. And, you know, again, gets to that final in Vienna, makes a semifinal in Tokyo, final in Seoul as well after the U.S. Open. We're going to talk about him exclusively in an off-season podcast, but he played just well enough with the weapons, with the belief, the confidence, played just well enough down the season's home stretch that I'm not willing to sell my stock just yet. Again, I think he's in that sh- that Miamir Kazmanovich position 
that Kazmanovich was in last year where it's like, this is the make or break year. I need to see a little bit more from Shapovalov if he still wants to be in that tier two, tier one conversation. Otherwise, I'm sorry, moving forward with how many talented young players there are whose just floor match in, match out is a little bit higher than Shapovalov's. I don't want to say it's going to be time to move on, but I'm going to have to allow those guys to surpass him because as high as the ceiling is, you got to get play close to that ceiling. Uh, and certainly he did that in the final against Tanasi Kokonakis and did that, I would say, in the post-U.S. Open stretch. And by the way, Team Canada being good at indoor hardcourt matches, who'd have thunk it, uh, says the man from Michigan. Yeah, we spent a lot of time playing indoor hardcore tennis. You could see how comfortable Chapeau Felix were playing first strike. That paid dividends. Team Canada, your 2022 Davis Cup champions, of course. I alluded to it earlier, but let's talk about Alex Diemenauer and the Aussies real quick. First of all, the energy Leighton Hewitt brings to the sideline and sets the tone for this Australian team. They get after it. They get loud. They pump one another up. You're going to see the vociferous fist pumping and the full body chest bumps. And, you know, when you're in the squat position screaming, come on so loudly, you're like, is he about to go to the bathroom on the court? I hope we don't see that. But you look for Demon Hour. I mean, the win over Vanderson Schulp, three sets against the Netherlands, just with how Australia needed that result in the moment with, of course, uh, you know, again, just to clinch things and not mess around heading into the doubles, where, of course, Netherlands team of Kuhlhoff and Middlecoop, two of the top 25 doubles players in the country, uh, in, the, in the country, excuse me, in the world. And so, you know, that was a big come from behind three set win from Demon Hour, five, seven, six, three, six, four. And then... You know, with his team down one love because Borna Chorch looked excellent in a straight set win over Tenassi Kokonakis. Demon Hour delivered two and two over Marin Chilich. And the breaks came early and they came often in each of those sets. And just Demon Hour's ability to absorb that Chilich first strike, how well he hits his backhand passing shot, just dips it at the feet and guarantees you're going to pop up your first volley. And unless you hit a perfect drop shot on that first volley, Demon Hour is tracking it down and going to get a look at a second pass. And you're maybe no one's more dangerous when looking at a second pass outside of Novak Djokovic than Alex Demon Hour. I mean, Demon. I was really impressed with Demon Hour throughout the course of the weekend. The energy he played with, the passion, just his ability to just come up with the big points when he needed them. And again, Felix is that guy because down one love in that second set, down 15-40, he was able to fight off break point chances. Of course, I forgot to mention this, but 3-2 second set, Felix is up a break. He's down love 40. He fights him his way out of that deficit as well. That said, Demon Hour was really the only one on the weekend to earn significant breakpoint chances against Felix. And Demon Hour finishes the 2022 season 47 and 25, so winning 67% of his matches, but also with a 27.8% break percentage. Not only is that, you know, 5% above the top 50 average this season, it's a top 10 number amongst top 50 players on the year. 23 years old, you look for Demon. I mentioned that 47 and 25 number. You look for him since the start of Eastbourne all the way back on June 20th for Alex Diemenauer to end, I suppose, second half of the year, 25-11 and 11 overall. 169% of his matches was not only breaking serve 27.8% of the time, but was holding 80.9%, which certainly on hard courts, on grass courts, that number is going to go up. But if Diemenauer can even become 
you know, ranked 25th as a server, just average amongst the top 50 player with how well he returns, how many opportunities he creates for himself, uh, you know, in the improvisational moments. If he can just make life a little bit easier, which he was able to do down the season's home stretch, again, now we can talk about Alex Diemenauer ceiling moving into that tier two range and with the sort of athlete that he is, he's just always going to be a tough out on a hard court, on a grass court. We still got to see the clay court results get a little bit better. And that's something we can talk about in the off season, but 25 and 11 to end the season home stretch. I don't know. I'm perplexed. What is Alex Diemenauer's upside? Where does he fit in the ecosystem moving forward? That's certainly something for us to discuss and look at as we look towards the offseason. But I mean, man, Australia's 2-1 win over Croatia. Jordan Thompson in the doubles. I forget who is Jordan Thompson's partner. I should know this off the top of my head. Oh, Max Purcell, duh, was who he played with. I mean, their battle against Croatia going three sets. When they got the break for 4-3, Thompson beating them down the line. I mean, the energy in in the building. Uh, Team Australia, you know, Alex Diemenauer, I thought was going to cry tears of joy in that moment when the camera flashed to him with how excited he was. I mean, both of the semifinals, 2-1 for Canada, such a fun doubles rubber. What was it? 6-5 and five in that match. And then three sets, Australia, Croatia, you know, that gets me to the format thoughts. Obviously, Canada kind of gave Australia the business with the straight set win in the finals. But boy, do I love having doubles at the end because doubles is so quick, right? How fast every point goes. And, you know, every point, yeah, I guess the serve, the plus one volley putaways, those are going to look the same. A lot of missed returns in doubles as well. But the improvisational skills, the quick reflexes, the fact that you're always on the edge of your seats because there is less rhythm, there is less monotony in doubles than there is in uh, in a singles match. With a decide, you know, when it's uh, the dec- the match decider on the line, and it comes down to doubles and whose reflexes can be quicker, who can execute those reflexes in the pressure of the moment. I love it. I love the thrill. I love that it does move a little bit faster so you feel like the crowd is more engaged constantly and just I also really like that the Davis Cup rubbers are decided in one day. Like I I really like the fact that you get all of the drama, the script of the narrative from start to finish. Yes, it's a long day of action, but you know again, why put the doubles last? Because one all, it comes down to doubles. You're like, all right, at most, I probably got an hour and a half left. And, you know, I've I've sat here through all the other action and it's going to be the decider on the line here. One match, free for all. Let's do it. Let's decide this now. I've invested a day in Davis Cup already. Might as well invest the full day as opposed to having to invest three days. I really liked it. I really did. And I do think, you know, across the board, certainly Canada, Germany was a fun deciding doubles rubber. Italy, U.S. was a fun deciding doubles rubber with obviously Fonini, Bellelli, 4 and 4 win over Paul and Sock. But, you know, that match, Senego beats Tiafo, but Fritz then knocks off Musetti and it comes down to the doubles. That was delightful. I thought Taylor played really well in his straight set win over Musetti. You can just see how confident Taylor is right now. He's like, look, if you can't hurt me, I'm going to destroy you. And when he's on his front foot right now, he's just striking the ball so purely with so much power. That's why we were always excited about his upside here at Cracked Rackets. But You know, again, I thought the tennis was really good across the board. And certainly when you look at the teams competing here, Italy, 
to make the run they did without Sinner, without Berrettini in singles. That speaks to the depth of Italian men's tennis and why they're a really exciting group to be around. You feel like for Australia, if Kyrgios plays, does Kyrgios beat Chapo or does does Demonauer beat Chapo and maybe does Kyrgios beat um, beat FAA on the indoor hard courts? Who knows? But that Australia team you feel like is really good with the U.S., all the pieces we have. You know, by the way, let's do that now. I suppose this will be the final chat here on today's show. I mean, Rajiv Ram was open in his frustration about Marty Fish not picking him to play the Davis Cup. And as the guy who was the world number one, is the world number one in doubles, just won the world tour finals, indoor hardcore tennis, where he just won those world tour finals. A guy who's from the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, played a ton of indoor hardcore tennis in his lifetime. Why wouldn't you play Rajiv Ram? Why wouldn't you pick him in that moment? All the, the stats would indicate it. The eye test would indicate it. You know, Marty Fish, by the way, acknowledged he made a mistake, and he talked about how for the team he was factoring in chemistry. And look, it's no secret Tommy, Francis, Taylor, they grew up with one another. They love one another. That's their group of guys. And if they have the opportunity to compete with one another and bring back a Davis Cup title to the U.S., that's something they want to do. That said, you know, did they influence – Marty to pick Jack Sock. How was Jack Sock the fourth pick by ranking? Again, it certainly should have been Rajiv Ram. You know, Marty Fish will have to offer further explanation, I suppose, on that decision. And I think American tennis fans have the right to question him as they have for that decision. Certainly on Twitter, you know, Braden Schnur factoring in Bradenshner, friend of the program, talking about the egos of the players on the team, ultimately leading to uh, the decision for Sock and them wanting a guy they can hang out with less, uh, more than a guy who might be better at tennis but who they like less. Look, I can't speak to that because I wasn't in the room for the decision. Certainly things got spicy on Twitter as Fritz immediately hit back. Tommy Paul immediately hit back. It was a brouhaha. It was the sort of drama, late-season drama Perhaps you don't expect to get Davis Cup taking the storyline uh, of tennis Twitter here in November. Is this controversy the best thing to happen for Davis Cup in America? Some scholars have argued maybe. But um, no, I mean, it, it sucks. You never want to see people fighting. And certainly, you know, Taylor Fritz's comments of if America won the Davis Cup, would it even lead Sports Center? Probably not. You hate to hear that, of course. That doesn't mean there's not. A significant grain, if not a significant portion of that statement, that's true. Look, of course the U.S. is disappointed. They lost in the quarterfinals in a year where you have Fritz, you have Tiafo, you have Paul. You feel like even with Jack Sock, whose track record, how many times on this podcast have we said a locked-in Jack Sock might be the best doubles player in the world? It's a disappointing result, no doubt about that. And that frustration spilled over in the comments we see in the post-match press conference. You know, people... If people call for Marty Fish to step down as captain for not picking Rajiv Ram, is it that much of a mistake as the Davis Cup leader? Maybe. I mean, again, I, I you give him one more year in my mind because with the talent we have right now, quarterfinals isn't acceptable. We have to get to the final stages. And again, on paper, should we lose to Italy? Not without Sinner or Berrettini. Are we better than an Australia team that has a great Alex Demonauer and certainly Kokonakis and all of their options and doubles are dangerous, but we have the world number one, Rajiv Ram. We have Jack Sock there as well. You know, yeah, you probably want three singles players in case someone gets injured, but with Fritz, Tiafo, Paul, Korda, 
all these guys to choose from moving forward, quarterfinals is not acceptable. We have to be doing better than that. And of course, it sucks to say this. I wish tennis fans would just inherently get excited, but you know what would get them excited? Bring home a championship. Now we have something to be excited about, obviously, as it relates to Davis Cup. But look, again, really fun event. It was fun to lock in. The energy in the building. Again, I wish we could, I wish we maybe the home sites rotated every year or, you know, I do miss the home tie rubbers because the home crowds in certain countries in particular could get extraordinarily exciting. But the energy of this event, how much these players clearly care. You could see it on Felix's face, Chapo's face. You could see it on Demon Hour's face. You could see it on the Americans' faces even in defeat or after the doubles rubber with you know Croatia. You could see it on Pavic's face, how much this means to these players and to see them so thoroughly invested, which is not always is the case when you're watching tour events week in week out davis cup matters and we got to figure out how best to sell and promote and build this property moving forward because i know it's always back in my day davis cup meant everything when you lock in on the event the energy of it you can completely understand why so we're going to talk a little davis cup i think more here in the off season with that said i suppose the one other tennis takeaway shout out to diane schneider i mean what the incoming freshman has for nc state has done over the course of this 2022 season on the pro tour you look at her results 54 and 16 she won 77% of her matches. The 18-year-old, 109 in the world. It's got to be, if not the highest-ranked player to ever come to college tennis. If she does indeed do that, she just wins the Montevideo. 125K wins over Irani, Katerina Bandelio, Jean Jean, a good win over Haley Baptiste as well. And perhaps most impressively, unseated in the event, she didn't drop a set on her way to the title. And you look for her now. She reached the final of the 60K in Las Vegas uh, back in October, quarterfinals of the 125K in Buenos Aires before she was knocked out by Danka Kavinich. She's made semifinals or further at a couple of 60K events this year. Of course, won, 60Ks, uh, won the 60K in Istanbul back in April. You're 109 in the world. She only has 25K points really to defend until the start of, uh, until the end of April, excuse me. And with her ranking 109, she's not going to have the opportunity to turn those 25Ks into 125Ks, maybe even go play some WTA Tour qualifying. If she's lucky, maybe, just maybe, she gets into the main draw of the 2022 Australian Open. Oh, man, I just it's going to be really tough for Diane Schneider with where she now finds herself in the pro uh, rankings. And I know she's made a commitment to NC State, obviously, Simon Earnshaw. There's a reason players commit to him and they go on to have so much success. He's as exceptional of a developmental coach as you're going to find. But I mean, with how well Schneider hits the ball, with how well, dare I say, she's already developed here. You know, is it worth it? to go spend a semester elsewhere and to slow this role you have? Or do you ride the momentum, ride the ranking, take advantage of the opportunities that are now presented to you? Obviously, Schneider, her family, her coaching team, they're going to have to make that decision. It's really tough to turn that down considering where she's at from a points perspective. How well she's positioned herself for the start of the year would not surprise me at all if ultimately she does make that decision to turn pro. But man, Jean Jean... Bindle, Baptiste, Irani, and she doesn't drop a set on her way to that title. That's a ridiculous run. And 
certainly Schneider Watch is something we'll all be on as college tennis fans here to end the season. With that said, though, that's a look at the past weekend. Of course, now we really will begin to shift into off-season mode, folks. Things are going to get funky here on this mini-break podcast as we offer a perhaps deeper dive at some of our takeaways from the 2022 season, then, of course, begin previewing what we expect to see unfold in 2023. Of course, the reason we're able to do all that here at Cracked Rackets is because of the work of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a f- of a job to do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Canada does it, your 2022 Davis Cup champions. With that said, we'll see you all tomorrow. And as always, that's the break. Thanks, everyone. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.